0: You're listening to the Really Serious History Podcast. I am, of course, your host, as always, um, Benjamin uh, von Luxenberg, and I'm here with my esteemed colleague, uh, a very uh, professional, very very worldly, very wise uh, man. He's the um, he's the Duchess of Windsor. And he's also the uh, the chair of, uh, of philosophy, uh, Ph.D., D.I.C.C.H.I. C.H.I.,
1: Devin Kay, Thank you for joining us, sir. It's always good to be here with you, Jared. It's always good. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm also Grand Puba of the Water <laughs> Buffalo Lodge in Boston. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, just qu- quite,
0: quite a... Uh, quite a resume and, and we're just so happy to have you here to, to talk about uh history very seriously here on the the serious history podcast uh i just wanted to ask you have you have you uncovered any uh, very
1: um very
0: academic uh his, history facts
1: lately yes yeah, so like one uncontested fact which i find very interesting uh so this is during the french revolution right when they stormed the bastille so obviously there's a guy in charge of the Bastille, you know, the fucking marquee of what's his foo-foo or whatever. Hey, this and is the so, Serious History Podcast. You can't... Well, I don't remember uh, his name. His I'm profanity. sorry. <laughs> but anyways, they storm the Bastille and take him hostage and take a couple of hours to decide what to do with him. Eventually, he gets tired of waiting for them to decide. So he kicked the leader in the balls and then they cut his head off and paraded it through the streets of Paris. True fact.
0: I've heard that. It is a true fact. It's not great for the Serious History podcast, but luckily, this is There's nothing
1: more serious than having your head cut off for kicking a man in the balls. (laughs) I
0: I suppose so. That's pretty (laughs) true. (laughs) It's about as serious as it gets, man. I've been in uh, some pretty serious situations, but but this isn't the this isn't the serious history podcast. This is the Photography Friends podcast. Uh, I am your photographer, Jared Poirier, and we are going to do a little bit of a history episode, uh, the second part of our series on JFK. We're going to be talking about the man himself, uh, JFK. Um, and I am joined, of course, by Devin K. Uh, tell us tell us a little bit about about uh your week Devin? how are things going for you my friend
1: well things have been pretty quiet you know i spent the week at the camp uh, i did a lot of reading uh obviously nice. on jfk yeah and uh <laughs> i've been doing a real deep dive into tolkien
0: oh cool man yeah i've been i've been learning of, like,
1: reading her history
0: yeah it is kind of uh it is a little bit like history just with more dragons than actual <laughs> yeah exactly actual history has a disappointing few dragons
1: Uh, Yeah, like, a total of zero total dragons, which is... Well, unless you believe, like... uh, Because I think Chinese legend uh, talks about dragons, but... I mean, like, sure. actually, no. I mean, if if you consider Komodo dragons, dragons, then history has quite a lot of dragons.
0: Oh yeah, that's true. Not a, not a lot of significant dragons, but anyways, we're no, not here to fly. we're not here to talk about dragons. We're gonna talk about JFK. But before we can do that, I just want to thank our gracious sponsor, which is of course Cloudspot, the easiest way for photographers to deliver and sell their photos online. You can experience beautiful galleries, grammar proof image downloads, and custom storefronts for sales. Uh, You guys know the drill from last week's episode. If you listened, uh, the deals, the deals just gotten sweeter. It's actually 50% off now for the first 12 months. All you got to do is click that link in the description. Uh, What sources do we have for this one, man? Let's talk. Let's talk sources.
1: So I've been reading a book called uh, The House of Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also was reading uh, the same book that you did. Um, the Dellek, Robert Dellek. Yeah. Cool. You got your hands on that one, the
0: unfinished. Yeah, Life? yeah. I
1: got them both at the library. Actually, um, you were you the, whole, the the whole time you were telling me about it. I was able mm-hmm. to go and look at the book and check and, it. And how are you feeling about uh,
0: Karl Marx since you went to the library? Now you love him, right?
1: Yeah, and honestly, <laughs> the more I go to the library, uh, the more socialist I become. It's <laughs> oh. crazy. Uh, it's either propaganda or there's uh, some kind of correlation between education and political views. I don't know. <laughs> well, there is something mm-hmm. inherently
0: um, inherently socialist about the library, right? Like, technically, I suppose so. Technically, you should be pulling yourself up by your own book straps. Uh, <laughs>
1: um, I guess so, but they've been around for so long. I have to assume that society's always seen clear benefit in the investment.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, there was that one really famous one that uh, got burned down, right? the The library in Alexandria, or whatever. But we're not going to ha- talk about that at all. Uh, yeah. So there's that. Uh, the great book, uh, Unfinished Life, Robert Delek, And I also um, listened to a really nice lecture. I mean, I listened to a bunch of stuff and I read a bunch of stuff too. But yeah. I, I do want to highlight this one. Uh, Gresham College. Uh, this nice lecture on Kennedy um, by Vernon Bogdanor. So good luck with that name. Uh, but <laughs> you can actually uh, just find that right there on the Gresham uh, College website, and you can watch that whole, that whole lecture, and it's, oh, uh, cool. it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, one of the things about the Kennedys is that there's such a point of interest for so many people that um, there's no shortage of writings about them, right? Like mm-hmm. when I went to the library, there was an entire shelf... Just for JFK himself.
0: Hmm. Wow. Yeah. The you know, the library uh, here had uh had quite a few JFK books, you know. And you can get into any part of the topic that you want. There's so many different uh areas that you can kind of spin off in. If you're just purely like uh you know, a real sicko and you just want to focus on the the actual like head explosion part, you know, you can do that all day. If you're like us and you're more interested in the in the actual history, then you can you can do that as well, right? One of the things uh, that I learned at the library was that Kennedy was only in office uh, as the president of the United States of America for 1036 days. And yet he is consistently ranked among the top five U.S. presidents in history. And if you're looking at post-war, you know, he might be the top. Uh, He's the youngest. Not really a
1: great group.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not a great bunch. Uh, Yeah, he was the youngest uh, elected president uh, at 43, I believe. The only uh, younger president was Roosevelt. um, But he, I guess, became president uh, by being vice president or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, his president died in office. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, the... um, The phrase that I really like that I think sums up Candy well is one that he actually used to describe himself. Uh, He describes himself as an idealist without illusions, which I think is a really good way of describing him. Um, And Everybody
1: wants to think that they're kind of a pragmatist, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's true. Yeah, but everyone
0: it, just wants to think that whatever crazy stuff they believe is right.
1: <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, um, I kind of agree with, with the statement. Um, I think Kennedy probably understood politics and people well enough to know that uh, sometimes um, idealistic ends are not always achieved um, mm-hmm. through the nicest means. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, You know,
1: he, he knew how to play the game. He knew what he was doing.
0: That's true. He did. And we'll we'll definitely uncover that is that he did play the political game. And, you know, you can take from that. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Right. I guess any any type of pragmatism, there's going to be some some consequences to that. Uh, I really like this phrase. This really popped up, um, especially since we are going to talk a lot about uh, Kennedy's foreign policy, you know, uh, dealings with Russia and Cuba. I really think that kind of was the most important thing that he did in his presidency. I I, I would actually argue that, I think. Uh, and I believe that we'll probably both agree on that. Um, I really like this phrase here uh, from uh, Delek here, uh, describing um, Kennedy basically summing up his opinions on foreign policy. Uh, and he's talking... Really about, I think assassinations here, Um, but I think it does apply to you know interventions, assassinations, any any type of war really um, that that you're doing. He said that it has uh, these these interventions have unintended consequences at home and abroad, and I think that as we go into the history, um, we're really going to realize that that's true uh and, and in Kennedy's time and in our time as well right that any any chess piece that you move on the board uh you know playing the, the game of uh international politics that you you can't really you can't say before you move it what the actual consequences are going to be right and I think that Kennedy was someone who understood that well
1: yeah absolutely um somebody who understood the idea of moving carefully Yeah. Um, And I mean, like, there's the Bay of Pigs. But other than that, I'd say his record speaks to it.
0: Well, I mean, we'll get into that, too. But I actually think that maybe, you know, maybe it was because of the Bay of Pigs that being like, I don't know, people call it a fiasco. I maybe we can call it a fuck up on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) maybe it's because he fucked up so bad that he came back and, you know, possibly saved the world with the with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So,
1: yeah, I'd. Say that definitely could have played a factor. It's certainly you'd hope it would be something he would learn from.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. All that to say that uh, you know Kennedy is one of the greatest presidents, and there's a reason. I think truly, there's a reason. He's perceived
1: as one of the greatest presidents, right? These are these are all like these are all lists that are they're either voted on by historians or um, like specifically presidential historians or the public, right? So like who. What would make somebody the greatest president ever? How would you gauge that? Um, and even though I love Kennedy, how could you definitely say that when he had less than a term?
0: Yeah, well, we'll talk about it when we get uh, that. Okay. it that is the thing but we'll talk about that as we get into this episode and we'll get into yeah. some details of i uh, sorry of Kennedy's to jump your life. gun no it's all good <laughs> <laughs> you know we'll decide by the end is is he that, that'll that be a good way to frame this episode you know we'll decide by the end what it what it actually means to be uh, a great leader and, and if he was one um, I think that some things just kind of high level things that really stood out to me about Kennedy um, reading about his life and his presidency he was incredibly ambitious um, he was incredibly in touch with people as well i think that now everyone the very common phrase that's associated with politicians is that they're out of touch right um he was somebody yeah. who uh really had his you know finger on the pulse of uh of the country and what people are thinking uh i think that he was proactive i think that he like thought ahead he was often ahead of the game he was often thinking you know to go back to that chess analogy like three moves ahead right yeah um He had one of the, like you said, one of the shortest presidencies, uh, but also one of the most impactful presidencies and one of the highest stakes presidencies, right? Um, In his short time in office, he's dealing with everything from, you know, nuclear uh, confrontation with the Soviet Union uh, to, you know, Cuba, Vietnam, all of these uh, things that are in play. And, uh, you know, um, also... uh, to kind of bring them all together uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Like, as we talked about the closest that we've ever come to a full-on nuclear war, you know, other than what we mentioned already, Hiroshima yeah. Nagasaki, I mean, we shouldn't forget those guys would be pretty mad if we said oh there's never been a nuclear war because you know (laughs) for obvious reasons uh yeah Yeah. and one big thing um just the this is weird to think now but really he was an outsider like he was the like Barack Obama of his time in terms of like the type of people who had been president before because he was Irish because he was Catholic because he was um yeah uh
1: and nobody saw him coming, right? His yeah. political career happens so fast.
0: And I think there's actually supposed to be an O on the top of that name. I think that they changed the name from O Kennedy to Kennedy. I'm pretty sure. I,
1: I did not know that, but I yeah. believe it. Yeah,
0: pretty nuts. So
1: those liars,
0: <laughs> those liars were stopping the episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in my trailer. Yeah,
0: uh, you have a trailer?
1: I no, not oh. not anymore. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Yeah. Uh
0: do you do you know anything? So let's let's talk about this guy's life, man. Do you know anything about uh his time in the Navy?
1: Uh I know a little bit about his time in the Navy. I know that he was in command of a PT boat as mm-hmm. a lieutenant. Like a PT boat in World War II would have been like a really, really fast small boat with mm-hmm. like a couple machine guns on it.
0: Uh and um, missiles as well, torpedoes, yeah. Apparently. Okay.
1: Um and um I wanna say I want to say he might have been hurt in action once, but I can't remember.
0: Okay. Yeah, I can tell you this story. Okay. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. These uh, these PT boats, um, basically, the idea was that they would have torpedoes on the boats and then they would get up to these like uh, Japanese destroyers, which are like huge battleships. Right. And the whole point of these torpedo boats was to just get as close to the destroyers as you can and then launch these torpedoes. uh, And you could actually sink a destroyer. Right. So it's pretty crazy. Like you're taking down a ship with hundreds of people on it with this little thing that has a, a crew of like 12 people. So that was kind of the idea. Uh, Kennedy was the commander of PT-109, uh, and he was, um, yeah, you're right, The injured in action. Um, his torpedo boat was rammed by a Japanese destroyer. And him and the entire crew, other than the two, I think two of them died. And then they, the rest of them uh, had to endure a uh, three-mile swim and combined with some other, like, swimming around to different islands. And this is where Kennedy, um, like, one of the first incredibly heroic things that he does, he actually saved this guy, uh, Pappy, Pappy McMaffin, I think is his name, which is a, a hilarious fucking name. Um, <laughs> uh, Kennedy was swimming, holding uh, Pappy um, Um, holding his life jacket uh, in his teeth and actually save this guy's life. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, And they, you know, they were on these islands. It's you're not out of the woods just because you got away from that destroyer. Uh, The Japanese army was looking for these guys. They wanted to take them out. And Kennedy actually um, wrote a message, carved it into a coconut. And there's these two guys. So if it wasn't for these guys, uh, Bayuki, gasa and Aroni Kumana. Uh, you wouldn't ever have heard the name, uh, John F. Kennedy. So these guys saved his life. They actually, uh, brought that message to, um, the American command. And then, uh, the, um, American Navy came in and rescued, uh, everybody.
1: Oh shit. That's yeah. Cool. And
0: it's nuts that like, this is how you know that this dude had a crazy life, right? Is like, this would be like the story of anyone else's life. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, this is but just it's, like a it's another it's a day. foot. It's a footnote for his life, right? But it, yeah. you're definitely seeing some things um, that that will emerge later on in his career, like obviously that bravery, um, taking command of like a, a boat, and also the fact. Uh, I think that this is really important that he actually wanted a small boat, right? He would rather have the autonomy and the ability to do shit of like the smaller boat rather than serving on like a huge vessel where. Your, um, you don't just immediately affect the world by what you're doing, right? I think that's yeah, yeah, really important to draw out. I think that that's going to come out. Uh, do you know any stuff about, like, his congressional career, Congress, Senate?
1: Uh, I know that I think he had one term as a congressman and then he moved on to a Senate seat. Um, and I don't remember how long he held it, Interestingly enough, when I studied him, I did a lot more reading about his, his childhood illness and stuff like that. That okay. was actually what yeah. I got drawn to.
0: Well, do you want to talk but, about that before we get further that, into this?
1: Uh, well, why don't you talk about the congressional uh, stuff first? And then well, go
0: well there's really not much to talk about. I mean, his congressional, uh, everybody kind of agrees that his uh, time in Congress was not particularly impressive. Yeah. Uh, and in the Senate as well. Um, and there are...
1: They were stepping stones.
0: Yeah, I get the sense that he wasn't really, It's it, it goes back to exactly what I just said, right? That small boat thing. He's like, I'd rather be the, the the boss of this little vessel that can do something huge than just be lost in the Senate or whatever, right? He, I think he always wanted more autonomy. He wanted more power. And just being a senator, being a congressman wasn't enough for him. I get that sense that he was like way more ambitious than that, right? Not
1: able to affect things in the way that he he saw fit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't do a great job. I don't think of, you know, he's not, he's not an effective, uh, Uh, not an effective politician really here. Um, You see him capitulating to uh, radical racists in order to, you know, get the bills that he needs in order to get, you know, win the elections that he needs to win. And one big thing is uh, a failure to oppose uh, McCarthyism, a failure to oppose Joe McCarthy, which you can inform the people about if you want, like all that McCarthyism stuff.
1: So McCarthyism... Refers to a period in American history where Joe McCarthy, a particular politician, essentially created a state-backed witch hunt mm-hmm. to find people who they identified as communist and socialist, and to out them. And I mean, a lot of people lost their lost their livelihoods, lost their careers, uh, lost a lot over this. Someone to prison, and um, more than that. Uh, A lot of it was, uh, was a lot of trumped up charges. Mm -hmm. And eventually it came to a point where it it seemed more like it was Joe McCarthy's enemies than anything else. Mm, Yeah. Eventually, uh, Joe McCarthy himself was outed for some sort of political indiscretion. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think the era of McCarthyism ended just like that basically in a day.
0: Yeah. And, uh. You know, Kennedy had the the chance to really stand up to this guy to make uh, make it known that he wasn't supporting that type of stuff, and you know, for the reasons of political expediency, exactly the same reason why he chose L. Uh, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, right? LBJ as as his VP, right? Because yeah. Well, he, he it was it
1: was a, yeah. a means to an end, right? Yeah. Yeah. For um, sure. I think that. Um, Initially, LBJ would seem like the less harmful means to an end here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What I'll say about opposing McCarthyism is that it was actually dangerous. Oh, yeah. For like, sure forget political expediency. If you opposed McCarthyism, you were likely to be branded a socialist, mm-hmm. have your life picked apart with a comb, and then mm-hmm. if there was anything in it, vaguely socialist, that they could they could pin on you, then yeah. they would tear you down.
0: Yeah, I'm not even necessarily like condemning Kennedy here. I'm just kind of pointing out uh, that he 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 in the Senate, you know, and in Congress, he seems to just kind of sit there with his hands, like holding his hands together. Like he's just kind of, you know, doing what he needs to do to stay in his seat and kind of not much more than that right uh and yeah this is this is a time of you know we talked a little bit about the civil rights stuff and and i mentioned the uh you know the segregated lunch counters and stuff like that but it's it's a lot more than that as well and i kind of want to clarify that like it's not just about where you're sitting and eating it's about like access to education you know which universities and colleges you know you can get into as uh african-american right um and discrimination in hiring as well like like the type of job, literally just like your access to society, like seriously was at stake here. And you know, Kennedy could have definitely done more uh even as as president um, to address civil rights. I think that this is kind of a failure of, of his, honestly.
1: Yeah. Um, and I mean like he he had so many big uh foreign policy things that he was mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. um at that time. Um Lbj was much more the the kind of domestic laws person. like honestly, like I said that Kennedy would have gotten credit for a lot of the civil rights movement if he had lived, but the truth is most of that really was lbj. Some of those things were things that he had kind of been pushing for most of his political life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That being said, um, I think that lBj actually is one of kennedy's major failures when i've studied roman history i've learned that one of the most important things that you can judge a leader by is succession um some leaders have all of their greatest works torn down by dying and leaving their office to somebody who just isn't competent enough to to keep their work going um or or isn't morally fibrous enough in this case so lbj as the president had a access to CIA intelligence. He he didn't only know, he listened to tapes of Richard Nixon saying to South and North Vietnamese politicians, "If you wait to arrange your peace negotiations until after I become president, wow. I will make sure you get a better deal than you would have under LBJ." Hmm. That's that's textbook treason. Yeah. Now, LBJ allowed a treasonous man to become President of the United States. And in my mi- in them in my mind, that negates almost all of the good work that he had done domestically as far as it being in his favor in any way. Yeah. And it also actually negated a lot of good foreign policy work by Kennedy. Hmm. yeah so yeah, this sure. this failure to arrange proper succession himself and then for his successor, to do anything about what he knew um I think did serious harm. I think Nixon was a horrible president. Oh, yeah, I don't think a lot of
0: people are gonna argue with you there. Yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I don't know, some people might, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah. so it's it's unfortunately not an intention, but mm-hmm. it was the the outcome of of his choice to choose a politically expedient person yeah. to be on his ticket.
0: Yeah. And if you want to give him credit for the things that he did right, I really think that it's important that we point out the failures as well, right? Cuz like yeah. I do think it's all kind of mingled together. One thing that he this is one of the things that I I think is indisputable though. His his skills uh in terms of delivering speeches, you know, as an orator, oh, yeah. his ability to inspire people, um his his ability to come out with these like one-liners that would stick in your head and really they're still talked about today right like some of the most uh important phrases from from history came out of this guy's mouth right like in that
1: respect he was lincoln-esque
0: oh for sure ask ask Uh, not uh what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country uh the thing of uh mankind must put an end to war before war puts an end to mankind yeah. You know, uh, the, we, we choose to do these things, um, not because they're easy, but because, but because they're hard. They're hard. Yeah. Yeah,
1: That's, that's one of my favorite lines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and I think that that speaks a lot to Kennedy's intentions, mm-hmm. um, is that he, he was somebody who was willing to try to take on the serious problems of the world in his eight years rather than putting them off for somebody else's. Yeah
0: very true very true and i i think that you can't really you know this it seems less important than like an actual policy or whatever right like or yeah. or a war or something but I, I i don't know if it is man like the ability to inspire people the ability to um to, to make people want to engage with their country right to make people want to engage with society that is rare it is rare and i and i do think that you know this has echoes throughout history so i don't want to you know i I don't want to denigrate that that the importance of that and one one thing you know we got to give jackie credit here too um kennedy when he was a senator and stuff like that he was not great at speeches people thought that he talked with too high a pitch and he seemed like he was kind of nervous and shit Isn't that interesting? And Jackie was his vocal coach and she's the one who kind of told him like, no, you got to speak like slowly, clearly, deeper, things like that.
1: Everybody has to start somewhere. Yeah. I mean, like I can remember until I was in like grade nine or grade 10, I was like, like deathly afraid of speaking in front of the class. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that I was afraid to tell anybody off in in the right moment, but (laughs) put me, put me in front of a room formally all of a sudden and I just couldn't do it.
0: Yeah, and look um, at you now, real, yeah, po- yeah. real podcast boy. <laughs>
1: I'm a podcast boy, um, you know, a uh, seeker of the center of attention in many rooms. Yeah, true.
0: <laughs> that is true. I know that because I've partied with you before. I do you want to talk a little bit about his health? Uh, you said that you did yeah. quite a bit of reading on that. So,
1: Kennedy was partially sold on, you know, being uh, a young man who was still vigorous and had great health, but uh, Kennedy had had health problems his entire life. Um, he nearly died of scarlet fever when he was a child. Um, he had serious digestive problems, probably colitis or IBS. Um, mm-hmm. He had urinary tract infections, oste- often prostatitis. um He had ulcers. Um, he had a terrible spine, back problems. Um, that he got playing football in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I believe his, his back problems were severe enough that he was initially rejected uh, when he applied to the Navy. Mm. Well, um, his dad took care of that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It must must be nice to have a rich father. I, I yeah. wouldn't know, but... Um, I wouldn't know about it. He had, I think, four back surgeries. Uh, the last one in 1957, just a few yeah. years before he became... Uh, president while he was a senator yeah this stuff Um, was all covered up by the way yeah yeah very much covered up they didn't want anybody to know this uh as uh as as i think about it actually i think he actually had a back surgery similar to mine Hmm. where they fused parts of his spine together with metal
0: crazy man just another way that you're like kennedy bro
1: (laughs) yeah oh yeah there's are there ways like how many ways uh there's
0: more ways tell me all the ways your ability to inspire people Devin. really
1: yeah I, I can definitely inspire people to listen and sometimes give me their money, but oh good! <laughs> but, uh, I hadn't really tried any grander purpose yet. Okay. Well, it's good to know though. I do think about starting a political party. They kind of all suck here.
0: Yeah, they do kind of all suck, but I don't know if there's a lot of a, a lot of a point in that anyways. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Is, is it the Addison's disease? Did you mention that? Is that the... Uh, I
1: didn't get to that. No, but okay. he did have Addison's disease. I had a lot of problems, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, so his, his back surgeries did not heal well. Um, he had painful abscesses. He had bone infections. Um, at one point he was so sick that he was administered last rites.
0: Yeah, I know that. Yeah. And he, Um, his back got more hurt, um, from that, the, um, the incident that we talked about earlier in the war with the, uh, with the PT boat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The PT boat probably would have been so bad for his back, all that bouncing around on the water.
0: No, like uh, pulling the dude with his teeth too and like
1: getting his boat rammed and all oh, that. Oh yeah, no, that yeah. does add some weight to that. Yeah. Um, and this is one of those themes that makes him similar to FDR to me. So, I mean, mm-hmm. FDR was hiding the outcome of a severe case of polio. People mm-hmm. knew that he had a little bit of uh, motion disability, but they didn't know that he couldn't stand on his own or, yeah. or walk more than a few feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I think when you look at FDR's life, the hardships of his illness, and the the length of them too, prepared him to not be so put off by the hardships of being president. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, probably when you've been dealing with serious health problems for that long, it's hard for things to get you down in that way, and it probably, probably played a part in why FDR was able to inspire people as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that might be similar in Kennedy, that that the the hardships of his illness they prepared and hardened him for what he was what was coming for him
0: mhm yeah it's interesting like a lot of people would say oh we need to have a a healthy president like it's so important that the the president not be somebody with all these health problems but kennedy was this guy who was just so confident that he should be the president right that he he was the guy to be making these decisions he was the guy to represent the people right and i don't think uh, there was anyone better yeah. No, I don't, I don't Not think at so the either. Time. Yeah, I don't think so either. Uh, and I also get the sense that with all of these, like, health problems that he kind of had, like, I think he already thought that his life was forfeit in a way. You, you hear him talk about, like, expecting to die young, right, with all of these problems. And I guess that he, if he was going to be sacrificed, like, he wanted it to be for, like... For the country and for the people, right? And like, I
1: think that if he was going to be in pain in his mind, his pain might as well have a purpose. Right? Do you want to yeah. hear a list of drugs he was treated with during his presidency?
0: Uh, sure, I love lists of drugs.
1: Lidocaine, Librium, uh, amphetamines including Ritalin, thyroid, horm- thyroid hormones, barbiturate sleeping pills, gamma globulin to stave off infections... And steroid hormone hormones he needed to keep his adrenal insufficiency at bay. I mean that's just a fun night. and that's night. just some of them. yeah, yeah, that's just a Tuesday <laughs> cocktail, you know. <laughs> I was gonna say
0: a Friday night at the club but a Tuesday tea time. okay. All right, that's hardcore. Uh, anyways. yeah. So we can get a little bit uh, a little bit more into the details of uh, his presidency if you want. Some um, big things.
1: Sure. So I think one of the major, the early major issues, uh, well, not issues, events of his presidency would have been the Bay of Pigs.
0: That's what I've got right here, uh, man. April uh, 1961. Now, we touched on the Bay of Pigs in the last episode. Uh, yeah. But to to go into it a little bit more in detail here and just to talk about um, how it influenced Kennedy's uh, presidency, like I said, I don't know if uh, he would have been so successful in the Cuban Missile Crisis if he hadn't fucked this part up, right? I think it's kind of this failure that teaches him and I've, like, experienced this in my own life, like, there's nothing that'll teach you something, like, fucking up, right?
1: I think that that definitely may have been it. I've kind of always had an alternate theory about this.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: Um, And, I mean, my theory is... Kind of counterbalanced by the amount of bad press he got for the Bay of Pigs invasion, mm-hmm. but what better way to get rid of a bunch of radical right-wing Cuban elements in your country?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Put them on the beach and then hang them out to dry. Yeah. Do you think that's what that that's what he tried to do? It's a tough call. Mm-hmm. I I can see. I can see the motive and the opportunity and the means. Yeah. <laughs> but I I won't say more than that.
0: Yeah. Well. I that don't being
1: know. said, the the like I said, the press fallback was so yeah. so bad that um if if he did choose to do it that way, it was probably one of the worst choices ever. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a weird thing. Like, he he did this thing so half-hearted. He was like, let's do this invasion, but then I'm not going 100%. I'm not going to involve America with air support and, and stuff like that, and we're going to kind of maintain our deniability here. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that he learns from this um, is that you can't trust, like, the pre-established... It, just because the ball's already rolling doesn't mean that you should keep rolling that ball. I think that he realizes that sometimes the president's job is to be that person who stands in the way of all of that stuff. Like these plans, Eisenhower was already working on this. The CIA was already working on this, right? Yeah. I do think Kennedy still deserves the blame for the failure, but I think that what he learned by that is you can't trust the experts and you can't just let like the bureaucratic process just keep driving forward. Your job as the president is to... Is, to be that advocate for the people. And if that means standing in front of what everybody else says is the right thing to do, then that's what you do. And I think that's what he learns here. And that's why I think it's, it's an and important as, thing to happen. Right.
1: And as the president, all you have to do is have the, the, the backbone, <laughs> excuse <Yeah>. me, to, <laughs> to do it because you are, you are the commander in chief. You're the decidenator, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the decidenator. <laughs>
0: Oh, man, I kind of, I, I wish that, uh, you know, we could have foreign presidents and that Arnold Schwarzenegger could have a term just so we could say
1: <laughs> that, you know. <laughs> Vote for me if you want to live.
0: And, the, oh, his re-election campaign slogan is, I'll be back. <laughs>
1: oh, man, that's rich. I love it.
0: Uh, uh okay. So uh let's let's not get lost in the puns. The the Vienna <laughs> The Vienna Summit is one of the this is the the fo it's time for the photo part of the episode, everybody. There we go. It's like 30 minutes in
1: and we got there. <laughs> uh
0: we're gonna talk about a photograph. So the Vienna Summit uh, happened in July 1961, kind of right after the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh this is where we have this very famous photo of Kennedy and Khrushchev. If you want to have a look at this photo photo, you can search Kennedy and Khrushchev and probably Google will have to recorrect your spelling of Khrushchev because the guy's name is really freaking weird to spell. But uh, if you search that, you'll find this cool photo of uh, these two gentlemen sitting together. Uh, Devin, you've got the photo in front of you.
1: There you are. So they're sitting together in these um, kind of very chintzy looking lounge chairs and there's a couch behind them.
0: They look like your grandma's um, chairs.
1: They do look like, yeah, like somebody's grandma's chairs and um, Khrushchev is sitting forward with his hands on his knees, mm-hmm. and uh, Kennedy's kind of got his hand out, and you can see that they're right in the middle of talking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what you're seeing here is the establishment of a relationship, which later is going to save the world from. The <laughs> <side>. <laughs> yeah, straight up. It, it, yes, yeah, no, it's, it's well, it's a joke, but it's not. You know, like uh, it, later on, it's it's the the, the basis of. Whatever, whatever basis of trust they form here—that's going to stop that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, it came down to them in the end.
0: It's so interesting to just when you're staring at the photo, like look at the body language of these two guys, right? Um, it says
1: a lot about them, I think.
0: Yeah, Khrushchev is—he—he so, he seems like a—he's. It's interesting what you said earlier, too, that he has kind of uh, like a youth, a youthfulness about him. He seems like a like when I look at this, he is like a giddy kid, like he's excited to be speaking to Kennedy. Do you see that? Or am I crazy?
1: I see it. I think I think that what you're seeing is so some people really enjoy vigorous debate. Some people need it. I mean, hell, you and I'm I have one of walked people. down streets in Toronto in the middle of the night yelling at each other for like 45 minutes. Uh, not really yelling out of anger, just yelling because we're loud. Passion. Um, <laughs> and yeah, <alcohol>. exactly. <laughs> and I think that's what you see out of Khrushchev and Kennedy. I mean, on the one hand, I always felt like Kennedy had this uh, kind of attitude, or sorry, that Khrushchev had this attitude towards Kennedy, which was kind of like, you know, this... This young guy isn't going to come in here and tell me how things are and what yeah. they are. But at the same time, I think that he probably was the sort of man who really would have enjoyed the kind of vigorous debate that he would have gotten out of, out of John Kennedy.
0: Hmm, Yeah, that's that's interesting. And uh, some of the stuff that they were debating about, obviously, um, there's the situation in Berlin, which we haven't even talked about, That there's so many things going on that we literally didn't say Berlin until right now. Yeah,
1: yeah. So there's the the Berlin airlift was pretty early in Kennedy's presidency, too, actually, now that I think about it. And so people are people are basically like just wholesale flooding out of East Germany and into West Germany, um, because, honestly, conditions there are better, and there's work, and you have access to nice capitalist products, you know, that you can buy for yourself and stuff like that, so um, Berlin being completely surrounded by the Soviet area of Germany, interestingly enough, eventually um, the Soviets cut it off, uh, not only are people not allowed to move in, back and forth, but goods are no longer allowed to move back and forth either. And so um, all of the, well, I can't say that uh, they, the, the needs were completely met, but uh, I can't even say, but an unbelievable amount of supplies, everything that, that uh, Berlin would have needed to stay going, water, food, toilet paper, all of it, mm. uh, suddenly was being brought in uh, on pretty much any plane they could get. Um, and uh, eventually, the, the the negative press from this broke, and the Soviets allowed products to flow in again. But uh, I think this was uh this was around the time that the the Berlin Wall started to go up, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, that that separation happened.
0: Yeah. So this is uh, uh... It's a time of tension. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is a big sticking point. Uh, and, you know, connected to so many things with, uh, you know, Europe, the European uh, international politics and that uh, also super tense. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Obviously, the the Bay of Pigs just happening. That was something um, there's like uh, the situation in Laos and uh, increasingly a situation um, in Vietnam. Uh, just all these different areas uh, as, you know, w- Cuba as well, where you uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy should be kind of at each other's throats, right, in a way. Um, and it's interesting here that they're
1: sitting down, they're talking things out. Uh, well, and I think their states would, would have liked to, or people in their states, would like to have driven them towards being at each other's throats. Oh, But for I think sure. what you see here, honestly, is just two good politicians who, I think kind of like you said earlier, weren't just willing to allow the balls to roll because people wanted them to.
0: Oh for sure, yeah. There uh, there's definitely people on both sides that consider, you know, the other side to be a snake in the grass and that's uh, dealing with them. There
1: were people in Kennedy's cabinet who during the Cuban Missile Crisis were saying if we're going to strike, we should strike now right. while we have the superior oh, tactical yeah. position.
0: Oh, yeah. You got to nuke China, too, while you're at it.
1: Fuck it. Why <laughs> not? Nuke the whales, bro. <laughs>
0: nuke the whales. Wow. Uh, yeah, the um, the kind of outcome of this, it's interesting the different uh, takeaways. Kennedy thought that he performed horribly uh he thought that khrushchev had absolutely demolished him uh and khrushchev actually was just like it was nice to meet him i think he's an all right guy i think we'll be able to work things out so it's interesting how they walk away from it kind of with uh with a different view maybe that's a cultural thing maybe that's khrushchev having more experience being a bit older i'm not sure but yeah but as you were saying the the most important takeaway here is that uh these are the two guys who um through you know through history, through fate, through whatever you want to call it, they had their fingers on the buttons uh, that could end the world. And uh, yeah, that's pretty crazy to see a photo of these two guys and and know that that is the context of, of what we're dealing with. Okay, so we are, uh, well, We're the next thing that we should probably talk about is the Cuban Missile Crisis, <laughs> which uh, took place in 1963. Uh Again, we kind of gave the broad strokes of this. I think that we actually got uh, one part of this a little bit wrong. uh, But the the overall thing we definitely had right, which was uh, the standoff over missiles, uh, nuclear missiles that were located inside of Cuba. uh, And, you know, obviously, the American government not being super pleased with that. Uh, because they could destroy america with those missiles and uh yeah the the uh the blockade and that that we talked about uh i think that devin you mentioned that this was a week and my, uh what i could find was that it was 13 days so that's the one thing that i think we screwed up but everything else i think we were spot on
1: yeah it was a really tense period um where basically um yeah we established the historical context right
0: yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was for for that 13 days, it was basically 24/7 in the situation room dealing with the problem, you know. I I assume they had sleep, but you know, for that 13 days, everything that they did all day every day was this Cuban missile crisis. Yeah. The and- the blockade and the 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 tension that went along with it all.
0: Yeah. And to put, you know, just to give a little bit of context, and then this is something that I actually looked up. So uh, it's kind of fascinating to me to learn this stuff. Uh, let's just talk about nuclear weapons for a second here. I mentioned that uh, there's never been a full scale nuclear war. That's true. The only time that it was ever used was at the end of World War II in order to get the Japanese to surrender uh, the bombing of Hiroshima, uh, followed by the bombing of Nagasaki. And these are like very, uh you know by today's standards rudimentary uh atomic weapons and w- between the two of those bombings that's like 200 people that were pretty much like killed in the most horrible way right that you could imagine um the things that we're dealing with in this period are very different uh nuclear weapons in general are measured uh in tnt equivalency so you have uh You know, when you're talking about the biggest bombs, you're talking about megatons uh, uh, of TNT equivalency. So the biggest bomb that was ever tested, uh, can you guess who tested the biggest nuclear bomb?
1: That was a Russian bomb called the Tsar Bomba.
0: You got that right. That is a 50. I don't know why I'm excited. I really shouldn't be excited about it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: I, I, I was about to go into like a, like a salesman pitch. A really cheery <laughs> description of the most horrible weapon ever invented. Let me tell you about our new czar
0: <laughs> bomb. It's 50 megatons, baby. It's the biggest bomb that's ever been blown up anywhere. When they set off this bomb, they thought it might light the entire atmosphere on fire.
1: We name it after men we hate most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird that they did that. Yeah, it's a weird choice.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah, the t- just to put this into, into perspective for you guys though, uh, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki, right? Uh, this thing, the Tsar bomb, is three more than three thousand times as powerful as the as Fat Man and Little Boy, which were the bombs uh, that were dropped on Japan, right? So yeah. we're we're talking about devast we're talking about the end of a nation. That's what we're talking about, right? We're yeah. talking about a type of warfare that you can't use.
1: <laughs> essentially, right? It's so yeah, destructive. Yeah. That's exactly it. The mm-hmm. the weapon that was invented that um that essentially negated itself. Mm-hmm. Um you know, basically well, in a way it negated itself. I mean It hasn't been used since the Second World War, and I don't expect it's ever going to be used. But at the same time, um, boy, howdy, does that threat sort of loom sometimes, you know?
0: Uh, Always, man. And I think it's always in the back of everyone's head. And I think it creates kind of uh, some type of weird psychological thing with everybody. But we don't really have time to get into that right now. Um, But this is a phrase that came up just I think this summarizes what you're talking about perfectly. Uh, The Cold War being a war of perceptions, right? So it's not really about who has the military superiority, who's going to win in the field. Like now it's about the perception of who would win, right? And the perception of who would win in a nuclear exchange and the fact that now it's we have to make it believable, right? that we would actually use a nuclear weapon. That's kind of the the the, the way that warfare changes in this period, which is uh, scary stuff.
1: Yeah, it it definitely changes warfare into this kind of politically devolved, scattered thing where um, the kind of developed nations of the world brought their proxy wars all over the developing world. And kind of chose to wreak all their havoc there instead. Mm-hmm. Um I mean Vietnam is a good example
0: of this. Yeah, for sure. Um Yeah, I shouldn't say there wasn't a ground war, because there obviously was, but you know what I mean. Vietnam,
1: Korea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um and I mean that's just if you're counting the official ones. I mean, mm-hmm. technically nothing happened in Cambodia and Laos, right? <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, technically. <laughs> uh, but let's talk a little bit more about uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis here in particular. Uh, the, the warheads uh, that were stored inside of Cuba. Uh, basically, Cuba was afraid that the United States was going to, you know, uh, want re- regime change there, that they were going to remove Fidel Castro. And they had a really good reason to believe that because the US was pretty actively trying to kill Fidel Castro.
1: Oh yeah absolutely like it they had failed to do it at least once or twice by this point. Uh, I never really understood um what was so threatening about Castro to them but um well, having you know. just like a socialist state so
0: close to America right um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and they had like a pro u s uh, guy in in power before, right? So uh, yeah, it was a big change for them. Yeah, so there's this there's this talk in uh, the readings that I was doing about you know um, nuclear weapons being the currency of the Cold War, right? So basically, yeah. if you have them, you're a powerful state. If you don't have them, you're not, right? And you can be you can literally the leader of your country can be replaced overnight, or your country can just be taken over overnight unless you have nuclear weapons, right? So uh, in order for uh, Cuba to, you know, basically maintain their sovereignty, uh, something that America apparently thinks is great, um, they had to get these, and I got a a number of 170 nuclear warheads, which were inside of Cuba,
1: right? Yeah, and at the time, um, nuclear warheads had not gotten to the point where they had, like, super extended range yet, or at least not accurately or mm-hmm. uh consistently. Or oh, the so Soviets didn't them, have them. The United yeah, States so had. Yeah, so having intercontinental them that close yeah. was a real problem.
0: Yeah, the United States had uh intercontinental ballistic missiles and the Soviet Union w- was behind in that respect at this time. So.
1: Really? Yeah. So how getting... the hell were they ahead in space technology?
0: I don't know. <laughs> we'll
1: get into that later, I guess. I thought those two to, things were kind of really tied really. together. They were like, tied
0: together, but it maybe it was just the ability of the US to to spend more. I don't know.
1: Well, that's that's a fair point.
0: But if I get the, if I got that part wrong then I'll come back and edit this and no one will be any the wiser
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, but there's there's the idea of uh, some of the stuff that Kennedy does here right to get back to, to Kennedy and um, his uh, you know diplomatic um, prowess I guess whatever um, doing this quarantine thing rather than the blockade, right? Uh, And not being super strict about it, there were Soviet ships uh, that he let through. And, um, you know, he let that couple of things slide uh, that if he would have put his foot down on, we, we might have been dealing with like a nuclear exchange, right? There's even the shooting down of this U-2 spy plane. So the, the U.S. is sending uh, spy planes over to take photos of these nuclear warhead sites. And one of them actually gets shot down. This guy, uh, Rudolph Anderson, is killed. And yeah this could have, that could have been the thing, right? There's there's a couple of moments that's like, oh man, this could be the one. And because Kennedy was able to, uh, and this is all happening in secret, by the way. They're not like informing the public of any of this, uh, at least not until later on, um, when a, I think when a lot of the worst of it is over maybe. Uh, yeah, the shooting down of that YouTube spy plane and Kennedy being able to look past that and not starting the, the war over that thing. Over that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the way that it actually ends up, uh, Khrushchev has this very famous phrase um, that the two of them are pulling uh, on ends of a rope, right? Just like tying that knot tighter and tighter. And at a certain point, there's no going back from it. Uh, but luckily, they do, uh, through like some serious diplomacy, um, they're able to work things out. And and you mentioned uh, these telegrams or whatever, right? That two, two messages
1: uh, in particular. Um, yeah, so... Um, there, there's a documentary by Errol Morris called, uh, The Fog of War. And in it, they interview, um, Robert S. McNamara, who was secretary of defense under Kennedy. And, um, he says that, um, on the critical Saturday, October 27th, we had, excuse me, we had two Khrushchev messages in front of us. One had come in Friday night, and it had been dictated by a man who was either drunk or under tremendous stress. Basically, he said, if you'll guarantee you won't invade Cuba, we'll take the missiles out. Then, before we could respond, we had a second message that had been, dicta- been dictated by a bunch of hardliners. Mm-hmm. And it said, in effect, we are, uh, if you attack, we're prepared to confront you with masses of military power. Now, um, what he said was, more specifically... We and you ought not to pull on the ends of a rope in which you have tied the knots of war. Because the more the two of us pull, the tighter the knot will be tied. And then it will be necessary to cut that knot. And what that would mean is not for me to explain to you. I have participated in two wars. And know that war does not end until it has has run through cities, killing people and destroying. And it goes on like that sort of thing. Um... It was a very, um, you know, again, this is the most tense period of this whole point. And um, I guess as a president, you have a choice in front of you. Um, Do you choose to answer one message and not another? And which? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Got to be the point here. The point here is understanding what the other person wants, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to put yourself. In their shoes, because in in the room that day um, was uh, a former, or actually either former or current ambassador to this uh, to Russia. Um, so there we go. This is actually uh, from a recorded taped conversation, October twenty seventh, nineteen sixty two. Kennedy says, "We're not going to get these missiles out of Cuba, uh, probably anyway by negotiation." And uh, Tommy Thompson, who, yeah, had, had been the ambassador to Russia, uh, said, uh, I don't agree, Mr. President. I think there's still a chance. And Kennedy said that he'll back down. And Thompson said, well, the important thing for, for Khrushchev, it seems to me, is to be able to say, I saved Cuba and I stopped an invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, in Thompson's mind was the idea uh, that, uh, you know, if we offer him an out that makes him look good, He'll take it. And that was also Kennedy's way, Kennedy's out to not not pick a fight here if he didn't want to. Right.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um,
1: And I think that the A, the ability to empathize with the the person that he was dealing with and B, the ability to listen to the people around him Mm -hmm. um, was part of part of what got them through here.
0: For sure, there's uh, in my reading here. I found uh, a very interesting point. Um, basically, something that Kennedy understood because because of his experience, but also just because he was a student of history, right? He and he obviously he lived through World War II. He fought in World War II. He also read a lot about World War One, uh, and he he just had a a great understanding of uh, just. The nature of warfare and the fact that war doesn't always break out because of like just straightforward aggression. Right. The the way the way that it did with the Nazis. Right. Where just a country is just invading countries because they want more land. Uh, what is far more common in history, and Kennedy understood this very well, is that war breaks out because of a misunderstanding, because of human error, because of like I talked about earlier, these things in the bureaucracy that get rolling and you can't stop them, right? These these knots that are tied tighter and tighter. And Kennedy, you know, as you were saying, the ability to empathize with the other side, not just view them as, you know, bloodthirsty, trying to kill everybody, and actually understanding their point of view and being being willing to work with them. So what actually comes out of this at the end of the day? Like, what what is the... Uh, what is the actual
1: solution Well, to this? we're all still here. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but in yeah. the end, I think um, Khrushchev was offered that out, and uh, they took it. Uh, I believe the United States ended up removing some missiles uh, that they had.
0: In Turkey, uh, and in I Turkey, think yes. Italy as well. I think there's an Italy thing. It's less talked about. but
1: I didn't know that one, but yeah, mm-hmm. Turkey's the one that you hear. Yeah, so it's essentially um, a think... trade, yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a compromise that allowed uh, that allowed everybody to get what they want. Uh, mm-hmm. In this case, there know. is
0: kind of a funny thing where uh, U.S. is like, "Oh, you got to take these uh, nuclear warheads out of Cuba," uh, and and then Cuba will say, "You know, well, these aren't offensive; these are defensive, right?" And then they look at the ones in in Turkey, and the U.S. says, "Oh, these aren't uh, offensive; <laughs> these are defensive nuclear warheads, right?" Just kind yeah. of the uh, the hypocrisy there, and you know, acknowledging that and actually removing uh, those those nukes, uh, which were similarly, um, you know, threatening to Russia.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, and I mean, it's interesting as a compromise because uh, America had other missiles with which they could strike Russia Russia at the time. Oh, for sure. Uh, It it was a compromise that got some missiles off their doorstep, but it, it definitely didn't remove them from harm's way, you know.
0: Oh, yeah. There's the, the the Cold War is definitely still going on after this period. But we do have uh, a limited uh, test ban treaty. So there's going to be less testing of nuclear weapons. Uh, I think they have to test them underground or something like that. Yes, uh, they had to yeah.
1: stop testing them in the atmosphere and underwater, which I feel like should have been like, like stupid obvious right from the beginning. But like... Um, you know, I guess, uh, the ball rolling and the wheels of bureaucracy and stuff like that. It seems like testing them
0: underground might not be that great either.
1: So I guess I could understand that, but I think being underground would contain radiation. And if I understand right, like the combined weight of the ground around the explosion shouldn't make it that big a deal as long as you do it right. I don't know. Hmm. I'm not a, I'm not a geologist, but. Yeah. um, It
0: just kind of feels like you might. Like, uh, so I'm just gonna say that blowing up nukes an earthquake. is bad. Period. Why yeah. don't we go
1: there? It's just yeah. not a good idea. <laughs> Splitting atoms is dangerous. It's not dangerous, the monkeys. Thing. Very bad.
0: Yeah, for sure. It is dangerous to be in, in our hands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the proverbial monkeys that you're talking about. And there's also uh, out of this comes the Soviet hotline, right? Like, we talked about these um, miscommunications or these uh differing kind of communications covering and, and the confusion of that after this kennedy installs a direct line he can talk to khrushchev when he needs to i
1: like cool. i i like what the soviet hotline is it just sounds so much like more inherently sexy when you I say the soviet say... hotline like <laughs> it sounds like a a phone number that you could call in the yeah, 60s yeah, 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 to speak yeah, yeah. to hot russian dominatrixes and stuff
0: duh baby Call the Soviet hotline tonight. (laughs) (laughs) In Soviet Soviet Russia, Russia the hotline has you. you? Oh, we do it at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay, so... Last uh, thing that I want to talk about here, and then we'll just sum things up. Of course, uh, one of the most important things that you need to talk about when you're talking about Kennedy, when you're talking about the Cold War, uh, is the situation in Vietnam. At this point, uh, things are kind of escalating. Uh, with uh, North Vietnam becoming communist and the fear of all of Vietnam becoming communist and kind of the ripple effect of that. uh, We talked about it a little bit in the last episode. Um, But in terms of like Kennedy's legacy, I do want to just, you know, speak more directly to that. um, And One of the biggest things, you know, I don't like to deal in a lot of historical counterfactuals either, Devin. But I do think that one of the things that people say about Kennedy is had he not been assassinated, there would have been no escalation in Vietnam. Um, Would you care to like discuss that?
1: Knowing Kennedy like I know him, I think that there wouldn't have been unilateral escalation of Vietnam. Yeah. I think that Kennedy may have been willing to escalate Vietnam as part of a larger coalition but not as uh, a single nation. Yeah, like in reading about it,
0: I th- I found that he was very apprehensive uh, to commit any troops to Vietnam. He didn't want ground troops in Vietnam. That was kind of a line in the sand for him. A lot of what he was willing to do was, you know, advisors, uh, you know, sending money t- uh, so that th- the... Um, The South Vietnamese could arm themselves, you know, um, money Mm -hmm. for 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 arms, for more guns, more tanks, uh, helicopters, things of that nature. Uh, And, you know, just being aware of history, as I said, uh, he was very much aware that like the French had gone through a similar thing trying to keep control of Vietnam. He actually talks about, uh, in in reference to Vietnam specifically, he talks about things like the Boer War and obviously the Korean War. And this idea that, you know, you don't just drop, you know, 20,000 soldiers in a place and then you take out the leader, uh, change the government and leave. Um, Everybody always thinks that when they're going to war, but then you immediately get bogged down. Right. And it actually spins out uh, going to this thing uh, that we talked about at the beginning. Right. This idea that uh, there is unintended uh, unintended consequences uh, to any type of like foreign intervention.
1: Yeah. And you can never really anticipate all the outcomes of a decision that you might make. Exactly. Yeah. afraid. Some, some I'm, might. Yeah. Some might be clear. Right. You know, mm-hmm. if if I drop my glass, it's going to break whatever. Yeah. But yeah. then sometimes you don't know how people are going to interpret things.
0: Yeah, I've heard the phrase, you know, you because of the nature of like history, you don't know what good news is. Mm, yeah. So you think that you do, right? But ultimately, you you truly don't. <laughs> it's hard to uh, say how things are going to spin. But you know, I think it's pretty reasonable to say if you looking at looking at history itself, you know this idea of a short war and an invasion, we're going to have regime change and then we're just going to leave. Like Never. Look at
1: Iraq and Afghanistan. I was
0: going to say, look at Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, That's probably one of the best examples. And this is something that, you know, it's it's such a situation that's evolving right now. So we can't really, you know, draw too many conclusions, but you might be able to say the same thing about uh, Putin's current situation, right? That maybe he thought that was going to be simpler than it turns out to be, right?
1: Yeah, um, but then he seems to keep doubling down as things keep go- going not so great. Um, although, like, so I guess in the West we would consider them to be not so great, but I'm not sure Putin's concerned with the amount of lives he expends achieving his aims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that.
0: Yeah, something that Kennedy was a lot more worried about as a person, I think, was, like, uh, yeah, everyone getting everybody killed and and just, like... um. You know, as as someone who did live through World War II, I think that Kennedy wanted wanted a better future for us. <laughs> like, I'm sure li- he literally. clearly
1: understood like what the consequences of a wider conflict could be, right?
0: Yeah, he had seen you know, like, that the story of humanity up until a certain point, we've been killing each other, and you know, with World War II, that really escalated, uh, and he wanted a different world. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I I think that maybe he wanted to deliver better you know Mm -hmm. what i mean um i think that i feel like kennedy felt like and i mean this is kind of speculation about him as a person but i feel like he felt like if he was going to be the president then america deserved a certain level of what he was capable of right that he couldn't half-ass anything um and that he had to do it with the right intentions Mm -hmm. like that he was going to devote himself to it well and properly
0: he truly did. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't have stats on this of like which presidents, you know, took time off to go golfing the least, but I would guess. <laughs>
1: that. Yeah, I today. would guess probably yeah. not him.
0: Yeah, probably not. Or
1: rather uh, he, he rather probably took some of the least time off. I don't yeah. know.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to look up. But he was definitely someone who was uh, dedicated to the presidency, like, honestly, you know, thought that he should be the president, thought that he was the best guy for the job. And he put him, his whole self into it. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No
1: classified documents in Mar a Lago for this guy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there are a lot of classified documents surrounding uh, Mr. Kennedy,
1: but. Oh, it's just not in Mar a Lago. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Something that's uh, not classified, though, is the second uh, photo of the episode. It's a photo of the
1: episode oh. segment. Oh
0: okay we're talking about Kennedy's favorite photo of himself if you want to see this photo you can see it on our Instagram but you can also just google Kennedy's favorite photo of himself Uh, it was shot by a photographer Mark Shaw who was not a political photographer Uh, mostly he would photograph celebrities and shit like that and uh, the Kennedy family actually hired him to take some uh, family portraits of them kind of on vacation I think this was like when Kennedy first became president or maybe right before uh, taking the presidency don't quote me on that uh, but there's some some pretty cool photos here uh, in the set and the the one that um, that we want to talk about the most I think although we can talk about some of the other ones is uh, like I said what Kennedy calls his favorite photo of himself uh, can you describe the photo that, that I'm referencing
1: I'm looking at it right now so you see Kennedy walking onto a sand path yeah uh, at the end of uh, what looks to be a lawn and And uh, the work by the photographer is incredible. He has the camera set so that the tall grass that's in the foreground is very, very clear, but that everything else in the background becomes uh, very, very blended Mm -hmm. and um, kind of blurry. Uh, And Kennedy being in almost nearly the center of the shot is also very clear. Mm -hmm. He has his back turned to the camera. Uh, He has his left arm, I think, in his pocket, in his jacket, is uh slung over it and he's got his head turned to the right over his shoulder and he's looking over the field Mm -hmm. i think it's interesting to say that kennedy's favorite photo of himself doesn't have his face yeah very interesting man if if anything the thing at the center of the photo is his butt
0: yeah it's a very very butt focused photo Uh, and i uh, you see a man who's very thoughtful here uh you know i really love what i didn't really take this in myself but i really do love what you said about how the foreground is all in focus and it's all you know very clear it's all fully rendered and then the stuff in the back is like is unknown i think that that is kind of a weird analogy for his presidency uh you know he's this lonely figure in this photo he's the only person in the photo even though his his family is probably you know right behind the camera here Mm uh yeah it says it says a lot about the man himself um and a lot about what he wanted to accomplish as a president and a lot about his own ambition, like, what it was. If, you know, if you're going to go into all these things and all of this, all of these uh, political situations and these wars, you know, what is the point at the end of the day? And I think Kennedy understood that, like, a normal life with your family is kind of what you're fighting for, right? If that That's interesting sense. because yeah. I
1: don't think that that was Ken- – that was exactly something that Kennedy quite got at home, being mm. a very, very kind of privileged person and, and uh, his father being who he was. Yeah. Um, and uh, like, I'm sure that probably you would hear his kids say that certainly they didn't get like a, a normal life at home all the time, you know, like you'd hope no. that that's what everybody can fight for. But the truth is, is that uh, in the cases like these, oftentimes uh, somebody has to sacrifice um yeah for the president to be able to spend so much time being the president.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. He was someone who, who sacrificed himself. And I think that that's, I think that's why his legacy is so enduring. Um, I like. I do think that he's. I, I'm not even someone who thinks that the U S. is a great country. <laughs> I kind of think it's crap. Uh, I don't get romantic about the idea of U S. presidents in any way. Um, but if you look at if you look at Kennedy himself, like he is an he's an incredibly inspiring person, and I think that maybe. Like, I, I do believe he wanted, was one of the, the best presidents, if not one of the best leaders that uh, that the world has ever seen, um, partially because of his ability to inspire people. And, you know, just the, the forward thinking that he had, it almost feels like he was concerned about us, like literally us in the present now, like he wanted a better world for us, which uh, there's not many people who you can say that about.
1: It'd be nice to think about. It's, area there it is nice to think about that, that that may have really been what drove him. Um, and like I believe that too, and I think that that's super rare, which is why I believe it cautiously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they say never meet your heroes, yeah. Um, but uh, that being said, I'm in your camp. Um, I'm kind of a fan of Kennedy. I feel like we've kind of been mm-hmm. kind of sitting around singing his praises this episode. Um, but um, Yeah, so I mean, when I look at this picture, um, I see it kind of as an allegory for the lonely road that presidency is. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, I mean, this path that he's on is is kind of really short.
0: Yeah. You know?
1: Hmm. Wow. Um, There's sort of an an allegory for his presidency there. Um, And uh, something about the casual nature of the man. You know what I mean? Like... um, most photos of most presidents are um you know standing their portrait style standing shoulders square yeah. you know uh their pictures right um but um you know this is just a, a shot of him walking with his jacket over his arm it's it's uh, very candid it's almost yeah. unrehearsed you know
0: it's human in a way that you know yeah. a lot of a lot of politicians they I feel like they want to be viewed as, you know, the gray suit, the just part of the machine, right? Like Big Brother, whatever you want to call it. And uh, and Kennedy, he he is in a different position. It, like I said, he's he's more of a human being, and uh, yeah, more of a representative of the people. And even if the tides of uh, bureaucracy and the tides of history were going in one direction, he wasn't afraid to to push against the tides, right?
1: Yeah. And I think that's, it's very much, um, I think probably part of why there's so much conspiracy theory surrounding his death. Uh, Um,
0: perfect, perfect segue. So, uh, we're, we're going to call the episode here guys. (laughs) It's been kind of a long, (laughs) long one. Um, but, uh, a lot to get into. Uh, and I hope that you guys really enjoyed it. We will come back. We will do at least one more of these. We're going to talk about the assassination and, uh, and we're going to get into some of the conspiracy theories surrounding this as well. So, uh, this has been fun. It has been really fun. I've learned so much in the last few weeks researching this. You know, as I said, it's one of those topics where you, you kind of say, oh, yeah, I know this shit. But once you start to read it, there's so many different things going on. And just, yeah, I think I understand i think i just understand the world a lot better now that i now that i've done this research so thanks for uh, going down this path with us so far listeners uh thanks devin for your contributions as always thanks for uh, including me yeah no worries uh where can people find you um on the
1: internet um right now
0: you're taking a break
1: yeah, right now I'm taking a break from the internet, cool. so there's really nowhere to find me. But I'll be back soon with things and stuff. Yeah, and uh, even
0: podcast-related stuff, perhaps.
1: Yeah, podcast-related stuff, perhaps. Um, but uh, for now, just uh, yeah, anticipate my rug. Cool. Yeah
0: uh the there's reviews that you can leave. You can leave reviews on uh Apple Podcasts. You can leave reviews on Spotify. You can tell your friends about the podcast. Uh Devin, where else can people find this podcast?
1: Uh what did we say? We said Spotify, we said YouTube, Apple Podcast. I think that covers it, doesn't it? In- Instagram? Instagram Instagram right yeah. right Fo- yes photo
0: underscore friends underscore pod that's where you're gonna find the photos related to this episode which you know we kept it pretty photo related Devin I'm pretty proud of us
1: yeah I mean uh the, the Kennedy the Kennedy Khrushchev Photokip is going for a really long time. For sure. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: great. Uh, you can also check us out on Patreon, and you can check out our sponsor, CloudSpot. And that's about all I've got for the episode. Uh, Devin, do you have something random for the people?
1: Uh, something random. Uh, so actually, fun fact, in the late... 1800s Victorian era there uh, became sort of a minor fad for nipple rings so sometimes when you're looking at pictures of fancy people from the 1800s some of them actually have nipple rings under there keep that in mind